This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Jenny Avern, and I'm your chair today. At this, the first day of the 2012 event, we have a real treat in store for you. Having had over 90 books published, and having brought us many loved and memorable characters, Jackie, Jacqueline Wilson has brought us the likes of Tracy Beaker, The Suitcase Kids, and The Illustrated Mum. Jacqueline Wilson has received many awards for her books, including the Smarties Medal, the Guardian Children's Book Award, and the 1999 Whitbread Children's Book Award. But perhaps the most exciting, in the 2008 New Year's Honours list, Jacqueline Wilson was made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Today, we are going to be hearing about Jacqueline's latest book, Four Children and It, based upon the classic Inez but novel, Five Children and It. Now, before I hand you over to the star of the show, we've got some housekeeping. First, can I ask you all to have your mobile phones switched off as we do not want to miss a moment. Secondly, can I ask you all to keep patient, we will have time for questions at the end. And also, you should have all been given a piece of coloured paper when you arrived. At the end of the show, I'm going to be picking out one colour from this bag. Those lucky people will have the opportunity at the end to meet Jacqueline Wilson and have their book signed. So can I ask you all at the end to remain seated and be patient whilst we choose the winning colour. Now, without further ado, can I ask you to put your hands together for Dame Jacqueline Wilson. Hello, everybody. It's so lovely to be back here in Edinburgh again. And it was a special treat, too, to be introduced by Jenny, because we've been having a little chat together in the author's tent beforehand. And those of you that have read my autobiography, Jackie Daydream, might remember that one of my most favourite books when I was a child was a lovely, lovely magical story called Adventures with Rosalind. And I loved it so much that, in actual fact, Rosalind has become my favourite name for the character in my latest novel. And Jenny is Charlotte Austin's granddaughter, and she was able to show me photographs of her grandma and tell me all about her. And so I got really, really excited because, for me, Reading is such a wonderful thing, and my childhood books um, meant so much to me that, um, you know, I, I couldn't get, I, I, as, as Jenny said, I was lucky enough to meet the Queen, but I tell you, lovely lady though the Queen is, I'd have much sooner met Charlotte Austin herself. <laughs> now, I wonder how many of you like reading too? Put your hands up if you like reading. Lots and lots and lots of you. Now, if I were to ask you what your favourite book was, is now for, for the children, I think some of you might be very polite and name one of my books. So I'm, I'm not going to do it, but I wonder, have any of you read any of the children's classics? Um, because when, when I was a child, these were also my favourite children's books. I loved all the girly ones. I loved Bally Shoes by Noel Stretfield. I loved Little Women by Louisa M. Olcott. Anybody read these two books? Let me have a Oh, lovely, lovely. Oh, you're all wonderful, intelligent bookworms up here in Edinburgh. That's absolutely great. These were all my favourites. I didn't have very many books because we didn't have very much money. But Puffin Paperbacks had just started being published. And I used to like to spend my pocket money and have my, all my favourite books on my shelf as my special Puffin classic books. So they were very special. And I didn't have one of my other favourite books, which was Five Children and It by Edith Nesbitt. I used to go to the library practically every weekend, and I almost lived there during the summer holidays. And there was a whole shelf of big, chunky Edith Nesbitt books. And I loved them all. And perhaps some of you might have read or 
the railway children or seen the film of the railway children with that lovely choky bit at the end where Bobby goes, Daddy, oh my daddy. And even now, and I've seen it hundreds of times, I, I start bursting into tears. But my favourite Ines bit book was a wonderful, really fantastically funny fantasy book called Five Children and It. I read it lots of times when I was a child, going backwards and forwards to the library, hoping that the copy was there. And when I'd grown up and started to earn a bit of money from writing my own books, I treated myself to a lovely, very early edition of Five Children and It, where it stands in pride of place on one of now my many, many bookshelves. And um, I occasionally reread it and read it to my daughter when she was young, and luckily she liked it too. And then I more or less forgot about it. And I will forget about it now in this talk, but in a little while I will come back to it. Now, I told you that I loved reading when I was a child. I also loved writing stories. From the age of about six, I knew that what I wanted to do more than anything in the world was to be a writer. Now, are there any budding writers here, I wonder? Hands up if you like writing stories. Oh, lots and lots and lots of us. And um, on Saturdays, I used to have to help my mum with the shopping. And in those long ago days, shopping was a bit of a trial, food shopping. You just couldn't phone up and ask for your order to be delivered to you. And you couldn't just jump in the car and go to a big Sainsbury's and do a big shop once a week, as I expect some of you do. We did used to go to Sainsbury's, but you had to queue up at the bacon counter, you had to queue up at the butter counter, you had to queue up at the cheese counter, then you had to go to the market, you had to buy all the fruit and veg, go to the butchers, which I absolutely hated, all the dripping meat everywhere. Um, and so shopping took about two hours, and it was very boring, and I had to help my mum carry all, all the food. But if I'd been reasonably good and hadn't moaned too much, she would let me have some pocket money, and then we could go to Woolworths. Now, sadly, Woolworths doesn't exist anymore, but it was a wonderful shop, and particularly for children, because everything was really, really cheap. And I was quite greedy when I was young, so going right into Woolworths, all at the front was the sweetie counter. And it was a big temptation, but generally, I managed to hang on to my money and walk past the sweetie counter, and then next, you came to the toy counter, and they had all sorts of fantastic things. Some of the toys only cost like a penny, and um, they had very special little pink plastic dolls, which I was very fond of, because I used to have to like lots and lots of these pink plastic dolls, and then I'd play orphanages with them, or boarding schools, and you could have a wonderful, wonderful time. But mostly, I managed to walk past the pink dolls too, until we got to the stationery counter. And Woolworths had the most wonderful, shiny notebooks, red ones, blue ones and green ones. And I'd take ages choosing which colour I wanted, whether it was going to be a really lucky notebook. And although they were all the same inside, I'd have to open them all up and peer through the pages and think, is this going to be the magic book in which I write my new story? And then when I'd chosen my book, I couldn't wait to get home. Now, I don't know about your homes on a Saturday afternoon, but mine was quite busy and very noisy. My mum went out to work during the week, so Saturday afternoons, after she'd done the shopping and we'd had some lunch, that was housework time, and she'd be rushing everywhere with her vacuum, and wherever I sort of sat down, she'd be saying, oh, come along, Jacqueline, put your feet up. And then my dad liked to watch sport on the television and he put lots of betting money on horses and whenever there was a horse race he'd be yelling at the television for his horse to win so there'd be my mum vacuuming and my dad shouting at the television and sometimes I really had to lock myself in the bathroom to find anywhere at all where I could have a bit of peace and then I would start writing my new story and it's a magical moment when the page is empty and you pick up your pen and you start and each time 
time I started writing this story on a Saturday, I'd think to myself, is this going to be the time when all the ideas in my head sort of slither down my arm, out through my fingers, onto the page the way I want them to be, to make a really fantastic book, a book as magical as... Inez Fitz's Five Children, it, as Charlotte Austin's Adventures with Rosalind, as Noel Threatsville's Valley Shoes. I so wanted to write this sort of book, and I'd write and I'd write and I'd write all afternoon. But generally, by Saturday tea time, when I reread the story, I'd be so disappointed. It would seem so silly, so babyish. And all this exciting adventure, which I'd envisaged, you know, having 20 chapters, it would be all over and done with by the time I'd written four pages. Now, does anybody here have any of these problems when they start a story and it never turns out the way that they want? Anybody here? Yes. Do not worry, it's just because you're young. And um, I kept on giving up and thinking, oh dear, am I never ever going to be a writer because I never seem to write the sort of story I want. You can't ever manage to write a story that, that really satisfies you. I still, I have written a hundred books and I still, each time, there's always something sort of missing in each story and maybe that's a good thing because if you wrote a story and you thought it was absolutely perfect you'd maybe not want to write anymore so I did try very very hard writing my stories myself as I was growing up and when I was at primary school I did write quite a lot of stories for my English lessons like my literacy lessons and at primary school, I was rather encouraged. I had a particularly lovely teacher when I was in the equivalent of year five called Mr. Townsend. And he was so kind to me and he liked my stories and just occasionally he'd have me come up to the front of the class and read them out to all the other children. Now, I think I needed a bit of encouragement because I wasn't a shining star academically at school and I was actually bottom of the class at maths. I never, ever mastered any kind of sums. And so I, I needed to have just something that I was any good at. I, I was also, I'm ashamed to say this in, in, when we've been having such an exciting time with the Olympics, but I was not a sporty girl at school. And I dreaded our games lessons because we all had to play rounders and I wasn't very good at catching the ball, I couldn't throw the ball and I couldn't run fast. So not surprisingly, not a lot of people wanted me to be on their rounders team. And it was a bit humiliating when children were choosing who they wanted on the team. And I was sort of like this, and nobody ever said my name. So at least I had my stories. I could actually read stories to, to the class, and they seemed to enjoy them. Then I went on to my secondary school. And this was a brand new school, and I was a bit nervous about going there. None of my friends were going to this particular school. And so I worried, you know, was I going to make any friends? And what are the teachers are going to be like? And was it really true that the big girls were really unkind to you and bullied you and everything? All these rumors that always circulate just before you go on to secondary school. Um, and then I, I, I tried to give myself a little pep talk and, and told myself that maybe if somehow I pulled myself together and believed in it strongly enough, I'd somehow rather unlock this sort of blockage in my head and become good at maths. And I'd get my legs working and my hands working and I'd catch balls and I'd run like the wind and I would be off having a brand new wonderful time at school. Well, I went to my new school and within a week I realised that in my maths class I was still going to be bottom of the class and I was introduced to the new horrors of netball and hockey and they were even worse than rounders, I kid you not, so that certainly I wasn't going to shine but I was actually much, much more upset because suddenly I didn't seem to be any good at telling stories in that for my first proper English essay I had tried so hard. I wasn't always a particularly good girl about 
spending lots of time on my homework. But for my English essay, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I tried so hard to impress this new English teacher, Miss Pierce. And I handed the essay in and I had this mad fantasy that when she'd read it, she'd sort of give it out back into the class and then she'd maybe lean forward and just into my ear she'd say, well done, Jacqueline. Oh, it's going to be such a pleasure to teach you. Oh, you're so gifted. And, you know, I was just full of this. Oh, oh, I so hope she likes my story. And then the essays were given out, and oh dear me, I had a very low mark, and my essay was covered in, all over in red teacher's marking pen, with little comments in the margin, like slang, and too colloquial, and I don't like your tone, and this is highly unsuitable. And I just felt so depressed, because I admired the English teacher. She knew all sorts of different books that she told us that we ought to read. And I thought, oh my goodness, if she thinks I'm absolutely useless at writing, maybe I haven't got any talent whatsoever. Now, I rather think, if Miss Pierce was still alive and I gave her a brand new book, um, she'd be very polite and thank me and she'd open it up and then her fingers would start twitching for her pen to go slang, too colloquial, don't like your tone. I simply wasn't writing the sort of English essay that um, a slightly old-fashioned English teacher would appreciate. And so, not surprisingly, she didn't seem a too impressed at the idea that I wanted to be a writer <clears throat> and didn't say, oh, good, good idea, Jacqueline. She just sort of went, hmm, like that. And my mum and dad didn't think I'd ever make it as a writer either because we didn't come from the sort of family where you did something exciting and artistic. Um, it was my mum's absolute belief that I would be best to be trained as a secretary. She didn't want me to end up in a factory. She wanted me to wear a smart suit to work and to speak nicely. And so she said that I should leave school and go and do a secretarial course. Now, I didn't want to do a secretarial course at all. But in those long ago days, and particularly if you had a very bossy mum, as mine was, you mostly did as you were told. So I went off to do my secretarial course, which lasted a year. And then at the end of it, I was just 17 and knew I'd have to find a job. Now, I lived in a place called Kingston, quite near London, still do in fact, and so our, our local evening paper is the Evening Standard, and at the back of the Evening Standard there were all the job adverts, and I was sort of looking through them all, thinking, oh my goodness, everybody's secretarial speeds are so much higher than mine, and I don't want to be a secretary, and oh dear, you know, I'm going to be bored for the rest of my life. When I saw a job advert that said, wanted teenage writers. And I thought, well, I'm a teenager, and I desperately want to be a writer. And so I wrote off to the box office number, and within a week, a whole information pack came back. And this was the lovely Scottish publishing firm, DC Thompson's, who published the Beano and the Dandy and lots of Scottish newspapers and the People's Friend that your granny likes to read and, and all sorts of lovely publications. And they had decided at this time, this must have been about 1963, that they wanted to start compiling material for their first full-colour teenage magazine. And they wanted lots and lots of material. They wanted um, some things about beauty, some things about fashion, and they wanted lots and lots of short stories. And I thought, this is my chance. Now, I certainly couldn't write anything about fashion because my mum still bought my clothes because although I had a Saturday job, I didn't earn enough to buy my own clothes. And remember, my mum's idea of teenage fashion was um, a nice pastel suit 
Now, there is no teenage girl in the world that really wants to wear a nice pastel suit. So I knew I didn't cut the mustard fashion-wise. And I certainly didn't know any beauty tips. I just bought the cheapest makeup from Boots the Chemist, put it on my face and washed it off again. So you can't really make a column out of that. So I had a go at writing a short story. I knew they wanted romantic short stories. But although I've been writing most of my life, I'm not any use whatsoever at writing romantically. One of those really serious, you know, the, the heroine looks up into the hero's eyes and thinks he's absolutely wonderful. I just couldn't seem to do it. I kept bursting out laughing. And you can't write a story if you don't take it seriously. So I decided to do something actually extremely arrogant. I didn't send them the material that they'd asked for. I sent them something that I thought I would like to read in a new teenage magazine. I sent them a funny story, a heavily autobiographical story about going to your very first big posh dance, where lots of your friends get off with the most interesting, good-looking boys, and very horribly and unfortunately, you were the girl left standing all by herself without anyone to dance with. And you make up all these silly ploys about how you're pretending that you're really absolutely enchanted to be there, standing all by yourself like a lemon. And you, you tap your foot as if you're enjoying the music. And you make countless visits to the ladies' room just for something to do, until eventually your best friend's dad comes to drive you home. And then your mum is sitting up, waiting to hear how you got on. And you tell terrible lies if you're anything like me and say, oh, I had a wonderful time, Mum. Danced with heaps of boys and they all wanted my phone number. And then you rush into your bedroom and pull the covers over your head and cry because you think you're going to be a social failure for the rest of your lives. So I wrote this story, sending myself up, sent it off. And I was so astonished because in a matter of days, I got the most wonderful letter back saying they liked my story, it had made them laugh, and they wanted to publish it when the magazine eventually was going to come out, and they wanted to pay me. And the sum that they offered me, three pounds, which even in those long ago days wasn't really a lot of money. But I can truthfully say I've never earned any money since that has meant so much to me, because it meant that someone somewhere actually cared about my story and wanted to treat me like a professional. So I knew you only get one chance in life sometimes. So I didn't just want to sit back on my laurels and get a secretarial job. In a month, I, I wrote practically every single day a new story. I bombarded them with material. And I think it must have amused them that this mad little girl in England was writing so often to them. So they decided to offer me a job up in Scotland. Now, I've never, ever been to Scotland at that time. And it seemed like you know, a big step to leave home so early when I was just 17. But again, I thought, you know, this is my big opportunity. I can't miss it. My mum was very worried. And, um, and so somebody on the magazine said, well, there are lots of hostels in Dundee. Um, she can stay in the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel. And my mum liked the sound of this. She thought, that sounds strict. They'll keep an eye on her. So off I went on the sleeper train from King's Cross up to Dundee, arrived very early, very nervous, very scared in the morning, managed to make my way to the hostel, knocked on the door, and the matron came, still in her dressing gown, and peered at me in astonishment, and I said very nervously who I was and that I'd come to stay there. And something had actually gone wrong with booking of the hostel. I never found out what it was. But certainly, the matron had never heard of me. And she said, well, dear, you can't come and live here. We're completely full up. And I probably looked as if I was going to burst into tears on the spot. So she took pity on me and invited me into her kitchen for a cup of tea. 
And then she looked me up and down and said, well, you're not very big. I do have a child-sized camp bed that I keep for my niece when she comes to stay with me. Perhaps you could fit into that. And um, yes, this seemed a good idea. I was up for anything. And she said, but I'm not quite sure where we're going to put this camp bed, because there are rules that say only a certain number of girls in each dormitory or big bedroom. And then she said, well, we can't put you in a corridor because the girl's going to trip over you on their way to the bathroom. And suddenly she had a brainwave. I know, she said, we'll put you in the linen cupboard. <laughs> now, their linen cupboard was really not much bigger than my airing cupboard now. But with a lot of pushing and shoving, we got that little camp bed into the bottom of the linen cupboard. And then she cleared some of the sheets away from one of the shelves for me to put all my clothes and possessions on. And for the next three months, until one of the girls moved out of one of the dormitories, this was my home, the cupboard. And in actual fact, it was a wonderful, wonderful move because I had gone to Dundee in November and it became extremely cold. I had no idea how cold Scotland can be and how that wind off the tay, you know, it practically takes the skin off your cheeks. There was no central heating in the hostel. We, we could have a fire downstairs in our living room, but upstairs, no heating whatsoever. But of course, the hot pipes went through the linen cupboard. Mine was the only cosy room. And all the girls wanted to become my best friends so they could squeeze into the cupboard with me. So sometimes, some evenings, we managed to squeeze about 10 girls into the cupboard. Some of them actually squashed up on the shelves. And we had such wonderful time. The, the matron used to switch the lights out at the main switch at 11 o'clock. But we were very naughty. And this is a terrible fire hazard. Please don't do it. But we had candles stuck in hair rollers and midnight feasts. It was just like all those Enid Blyton, Blyton boarding school books. And we told lots of jokes, lots of stories about our boyfriends. And sometimes when I look back to my teenage years, those, those sort of nights in the linen cupboard were the most fun ever. I also adored working at, T at DC Thompson's. They're a fantastic firm, gave me a really wonderful full training. I was delighted to continue to contribute articles and stories to the Teenage magazine, and even more delighted when it actually came out the next year, because guess what name it had? Jackie. So I, I, I was very pleased and proud when Mr. Thompson and Miss, no, not Mr. Thompson, Mr. Cuthbert and Mr. Tate, who ran the women's magazines, told me that it was actually named after me. So there was the Jackie magazine. And then I worked on various other publications. I worked on Annabelle, um, a monthly magazine. Um, Bizarrely, I, I had a baby column on Annabelle, although I hadn't actually even held a baby my, at that time of my life. But um, Dr. Spock was the main sort of baby and childcare manual, and I looked up Dr. Spock and interviewed lots of young mums, and somehow or other managed to make a column fit. And then uh, in those days, long ago in the 1960s, DC Thompson's had lots of weekly story papers for sort of tired women who, when they'd really worked hard in the factories all day, come home, put their feet up with their story magazine and just lose themselves into a world of fantasy. And I wrote lots and lots of stories for these magazines. Particularly, I worked on one publication called Red Letter. And at the beginning of the magazine was a whole reader's letters page. But the only trouble was most of our readers were too tired. They couldn't be bothered to write reader's letters. Why, why would you? And so as I was the youngest journalist, it was my task to write at least eight reader's letters every week, um, which was jolly good training for me. And then the lovely editor of the magazine thought, well, you know, Jack is so keen on writing all sorts of different things. Let's start up a horoscope column. Now, I don't know anything at all about astrology. I've never seen a star chart. I had no idea what it looked like. Basically, and this is a terrible confession, I made it all up. <laughs> 
and I'm born on December the 17th, which makes me Sagittarius. So while I was writing the um, astrology column, all Sagittarians were going to do tremendously well in their careers. They were going to become extremely rich and famous. They were going to meet tall, up, handsome strangers. All sorts of the most amazing and wonderful predictions um, were there. I, I, I really went completely over the top. And yet, bizarrely, when I think about it all these years later, many of these predictions have actually wonderfully come true for me. One thing that I wouldn't have predicted was that I am now still very happily connected with DC Thompson because they now produce the wonderful Jacqueline Wilson magazine. Have any of you girls read the magazine? Hands up. Oh, lots and lots of magazine readers. I love working on the magazine. They're a fantastic team, and I like doing the stories and the writing secrets and I'm particularly proud of the pets page because my cat Jacob <laughs> he doesn't really Jacob sits on my lap and I look at the photographs that, that children um, send in but Jacob um, has become very much part of the magazine and when poor Jacob hurt his his back paw and was very poorly for a while I have had such touching, lovely letters from little girls, little presents for Jacob and um, little photographs of children's pets, you know, saying, say hi to Jacob for me. And um, now, whenever Jacob goes out for a little walkabout down the local street, little girls walk past and go, that's Jacob. So he's really well known, which is fantastic. But as, as well as, as loving working on the magazine, obviously I love writing stories too. And um, as I said, I've written about a hundred, which really, I mean, if you asked me to name them all, I wouldn't, couldn't be able to do it by any means because you know I've been writing such a long time. And when you have got very used to writing a certain sort of book, and a Jacqueline Wilson book is usually a very modern, contemporary book about uh, an imaginative girl who's probably going through quite a hard time. And generally, she probably hasn't got her full complement of parents or whatever. There's always, um, you know, my, my, my girls are, are always um, going through a hard time in one way or another. Sometimes you think, oh, I'd really like to write something just a little bit different, just to show that I could. And certainly um, in the past, I've had great fun writing about my Victorian heroine, Hetty Feather, and I've been very fond of her. But although I've had one or two little attempts at fantasy or magic books, that those were mostly long, long ago, and they've been completely out of print. So. I was absolutely delighted when last year some lovely editors from Puffin said that um, they wondered if I'd like to write a book somehow or other connected with a children's classic. And I love children's classics, and I always try and urge children to read a lot of my favorite childhood books. And sometimes you, you hear, um, have letters from children saying, you know, I kept wanting to take another Jacqueline Wilson book out the library, but my teacher said, oh, goodness, not another Jacqueline Wilson. For heaven's sake, read something else. And I am actually at one with that. Yes, read all these other lo lovely, wonderful books um, that, that have been around for, for so many years. And so I thought this would be magical. Now, originally, it was suggested that I might like to do a modern version of Bally Shoes. And I did think about this very carefully because I adore Bally Shoes. And um, uh, Noah Stretfield's children are the sort of children, they, they quarrel and they worry about things, and yet they have a lot of fun too, my sort of children. But it would mean, obviously, learning a great deal about ballet. And although I like ballet, I know nothing about it. I have once been to the Royal Ballet School and, and watched their children perform, which was magical. But I knew I'd have to do so much research 
that um, it would really become quite a chore and possibly I wouldn't be able to do it. So rather regretfully, I said, no, I, I don't really think I can do this. And then I thought, do I want to take a children's classic and try and do a sequel? But that would mean writing in that author's style. And um, it seemed a bit impertinent to do that. So I thought, no, I, I won't do this. And then as soon as I'd said, no, thank you, suddenly I remembered Five Children and It. Now, Five Children and It is about these five Edwardian children. It's set in 1902. And they're very sort of realistic, funny siblings who, who get annoyed with each other and they sometimes fight each other. But they're, they're basically a lovely bunch of kids. And they go and stay in this house in Kent and they discover in the gravel pit a Samiad. A Samiad is a sand fairy who's been around since ancient times. He's very, very irritable and, and he really doesn't like to be disturbed. He just wants to cozy up in the sand and dream his own dreams. But if he's actually uncovered, he will, if he really feels in the mood, grant wishes. And all the children in Five Children in It have wonderful wishes, but always something goes wrong, something funny. And um, I love this book. I thought, I don't want to write particularly in Inesbitt's style. I couldn't because she's a great and wonderful, glorious person, and I'm not. So, but I thought, what if what if this Samiad, who's already lived for thousands and thousands of years, what if in another century now he is rediscovered all over again in somewhere sandy? And I suddenly thought, that's it. That's the way I can do it. I can have my very modern children and they can actually uncover the Samiad and he will grant them wishes. So then I thought, well, where's somewhere sandy? Now, my favourite place to go when I was young for a picnic was Oxshot Woods, which is about four miles from where I live. And there were loads and loads of woods. And when I was a little girl, there was a huge, great sand pit. And when you walked through all these pine woods, and then when you got to the sand pit, it was just fantastic because you could run like anything all the way down into the bottom of the sand pit, practically falling over, but you didn't hurt yourself because it was sandy. And you could take your, your spade and dig, and it was just fantastic. So I thought, I'm going to have my kids living in a house near Oxshot Woods, and they will discover the Samyad there. In actual fact, when I went back to Oxshot Woods, the sand pit had shrunk a lot, but there were still sandy bits. So I thought, with a pinch, if the Samyad hasn't grown too much, he can actually have buried himself down in, in the sand. And I wanted very much picnics to be a theme of the book because I'm greedy and I love picnics. Now, when I was a little girl, um, we had very boring picnics. It was just something like a cheese sandwich and an apple and a penguin biscuit. So I have made up most magical, wonderful picnics in Four Children and It. And I have my four children. This is Rosalind, the main girl. And she's very bookish. And we actually start the story. And she's been reading Five Children and It. So she's all primed. She, she will know about the Samyad when she meets him. Rosalind has a little brother, Robbie who's like lots of my boys. He's a bit, bit wimpy, but he ca does come into his own. Robbie collects, you know those little zoo animals that you can sometimes buy in toy shops? He has a whole collection of them and absolutely adores them. So there's Rosalind, who's quiet and shy and loves books, and there's Robbie with his toy animals. And their dad has remarried this lady, Alice, and they're staying with dad and Alice while their mum is away doing an open university summer course. So that's that part of the family. And then Alice already has a daughter who's Robbie and Rosalind's stepsister. 
and she is nicknamed Smash. Her real name is Samantha, but she doesn't want to use that. And Smash is a very determined, slightly difficult, pushy girl. She really gets on your nerves. She's very, very horrid to Rosalind a lot of the time. But underneath, you can just about see that she could have a soft spot. She is quite a, a sweet girl, really. She's just had a tough time with it. She's certainly very loud and, and mouthy and determined. And then there's a tiny half-sister, Maudie, who's one of these lovely, happy, sunny little kids who just laughs and plays and is absolutely the apple of Dad and Alice's eye. So they're my four children, and they discover the Samiad. And the book is all about their wishes. Now, what do you think they might wish for? Has anybody got any ideas what any of them might wish for? There's Rosalind, the bookish one, Robbie, the shy one with his animals, Shout, the loud, bossy, showy-offy one, and little tiny Maudie. Anybody got any ideas? Yes. Can you shout really loudly, darling? Ah, somebody's very, very sensibly suggested that Rosalind might wish for a lifetime supply of books, which would be wonderful. But the worst thing about these wishes, they only last until sunset, and then they all go away. Rosalind has something, she has two wishes, and, and one of them is that she gets to be a child author and see what it's like to have written your own book and have a whole load of people come along and have your book signed by them. And then Rosalind also wishes that she could... Have you ever wished that, that somebody in a storybook was actually real? She actually wishes that um, she could go back into the five children in its story and she meets all Inesbitt's children, but something difficult happens often when when you wish yourself say back into the past like I might say oh I'd love to be a Victorian lady how lovely to live in a grand house and to have lots of servants and lovely long dresses and all oh, that would be fantastic but what if when you were wished back you weren't the posh lady at all you were the hard-working servant who's working sort of 12 or 14 hours a day not quite such fun so Rosalind has a bit of a surprise. Anybody guess what Robbie might wish for? Yes. Um, for his toy animals to come alive? You've got it, absolutely. He wishes, now these are zoo animals, so in, but they don't get really big. They are little weenie like an elephant and a tiger and a lion and a monkey. But how is he going to catch hold of them all? And what is he going to happen? What's going to happen if the tiger, for instance, sees the zebra? Um, so I had great fun with that wish. Now, what do you think Smash, the, the showy-offy one, might wish for? Yes. To be famous, absolutely. Smash wishes to be rich and famous. And she gets to, um, she's a bit like a very miniature Lady Gaga. She gets to go to the O2 Arena and have her very own gig. And oh my goodness, she so enjoys it. But, of course... Um, when you have a concert, they generally go on after sunset, so we have to wait and see what happens to her. And little Maudie, she loves nursery rhymes, and, um, but you will know the way little, little children, they think they know nursery rhymes, but they get them all muddled up. Well, this is what happens to Maudie, and she wishes that all her favourite nursery rhyme characters can come alive. So they come alive in Oxshot Woods. And imagine if you're sort of having a picnic in Oxshot Woods, and then, I don't know, um, a dish and spoon wander along, and a cat playing a fiddle, and a load, load of children playing Ring a Ring of Roses. And so I had enormous fun with that. And um, talking about four children in it to friends and telling them about it, you know, I will always say to them, 
what would you wish for? And it's really great fun finding out. And when people ask me what I would wish for, I know exactly what I would wish for. I would wish that I would have the ability to write a whole book in one day. And then I could write and write and write and write, and then I would save it on my computer and print it out and then keep it. And then, then just think, I could, I could do that just sort of twice a year and have my two books a year and then have 363 days just to have fun. So that would be wonderful. Now, I think it's your turn to join in the conversation. You've all been absolutely wonderful listening to me. I think that Jenny is going to help pick you out and we'll try and get as many questions as we possibly can. If you could possibly wait until the microphone gets to you before you ask your question, just so we can hear every word. If you've got a question, you have to put your hands up and I will pick some to start with. Are you ever going to bring back Tracy Beaker? Well, Tracy, there's been three main books about her and one little charity book. She's certainly had a very good innings on television. Um, Tracy Beaker Returns has finished and I don't think, this wasn't my idea, Danny didn't want to play Tracy anymore for the television series, but I'm very happy to say that there is brand, well it's brand new but it's also old favourite television series in that next January there's going to be the dumping ground where all the favourites from Tracy Beaker Returns are still going to be there but there are some wonderful new characters too so I don't know if I might be tempted to write a story about some of them um, but certainly Tracy is the sort of character she's got a life of her own and um, I might occasionally write just a short story about her in the magazine and if you're a Tracy Beaker fan there are two annuals out now um, and one I've got my annual the Jacqueline Wilson annual and then there is the Tracy Beaker annual and I was meeting the the lovely girls who work on the magazine yesterday and they showed me copies of the two annuals and they were all very naughty because they're all saying oh I like this one best and it was Tracy's one not my one <laughs> still so so maybe have a look at both of them and see which one you like best too What's your favourite book of your own that you've actually written? Um, well, I have to say Four Children in It because it's my new baby. And it's also a book about books because there's lots and lots of mention of other children's books in Four Children in It. And, um, and I, I like books that are like that. Um, of my, all my other books, I think Hetty Feather is probably my favourite. That's one about the Victorian foundling. And if you've read the two books about Hetty, there is a new one, Emerald Star, coming out later this year. I have been working so hard. <laughs> okay, who's next? If we could change one thing, what would you change? And um, to do with my books or with or with anything? With anything. With anything. Oh my goodness. Um, mm, mm, mm. I think. Well, it's funny. Lots of the children in the audience probably are dying to grow up and think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, if I were in my teens, I could go out clubbing or have my own flat and everything. Well, I don't really want to be a teenager again, but I've got to the other end of my life. I'd like to be just a little bit younger and healthier, please. That would be good. What is your favourite part of the exhibition in Newcastle? Ah, have you been to see it then? Um, this is a lovely exhibition at the Seven Stories in Newcastle, um, all about me. And, um, and you start off with a mock-up of my childhood bedroom, and then at the end you get a mock-up of my bedroom now. And in my childhood bedroom there's just the one shelf of books, and then there's a, a huge, big sort of photograph of, of just a few of my, I've got a good, 
well, I've been saying 15,000 books for ages, 20,000 books now. Um, and there's even a pretend Jacob. Um, there's so many different things that I like in that exhibition, but I think I like my sort of funny, very austere little child's bedroom best because it's very similar to the way my real bedroom used to be. Which, which bit did you like best? Like the Victorian silhouette. The Victorian. There's a whole feature about Hetty Feather, and um, and there's a wonderful device where you can you can go behind a sort of screen, and then a friend, if you go like that, they can do a silhouette of you, and then you you can colour it in. There's all sorts of activities to do. But um, it is, I think. The exhibition is coming up to Scotland at some time next year. So if Newcastle's a bit too far away, maybe some of you want to go and see it, look, look out for information about it. OK, I think we've got time for one more question from this right now. Carol in the white top here. Where did you write your first book? Where did I write my first book? Um, where did I write my first book? Well, my very first book was called Ricky's Birthday. And, well, I had written lots of books, things that were called books, throughout my childhood, but they weren't published because they weren't good enough. But um, I wrote Ricky's Birthday when my daughter was about two and a half. And... I was married to a policeman in those days and we lived in a policeman's flat and I was very small and I didn't have a special writing room so I probably wrote Ricky's birthday at the kitchen table as many lady writers do and, um, and I probably read it to my daughter because it was a very simple story and um, and because my daughter's always been a very intelligent girl, she smiled and said she liked it. <laughs> and she's still, bless her, even now that she's long grown up, each time I write a book, she asks for a copy and then tells me it's lovely. Aren't I a lucky girl? <laughs> OK, well, it's been so lovely talking to you all. Thank you very much. And can I, can I just say, um, that Jenny's going to tell you all about the signing. I wish I could do as I used to do and sign everybody's book. I'm afraid I simply can't manage that anymore. And I'm desperately sorry if that I, I can't manage it. But um, at least I've seen you all and you can all say that, that you've met me and you never know there might be another opportunity another time. So thank you all very much. Can you also give yourselves a round of applause for the wonderful questions and for being such a fantastic audience? Okay. I'll pick one colour out. And those people that have that colour, there's absolutely no need to rush. You're just going to be going to the left. There's a big sign where the signing tent is, but there's no need to rush. If you have that colour, you will get something signed. So just make your way in an orderly fashion. And the colour is, I feel like I need a drum roll here. The colour is... If I can find one. It is black. So... If you remain seated just now, you will all get there in a second. If you have a black card, you can go and get something signed. Can I have one last Edinburgh Festival round of applause so loud that she can hear it next door? More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.